0: at gmail.com Thank you for listening.
1: KBU Community Radio is a proud co sponsor of the 2017 Iconic Music Party, Thursday, November 30th at 8 p.m. at the 6 West Lounge in Vancouver, Washington. Performing at this year's Iconic Music Party will be the true original beings C4 the Prodigy, MC Grown, Mike Crenshaw, Caleb Wildcard, and Ivan Jamel. There will also be EDM and hip hop DJs at the 21 and over event. Again, that's the 2017 Iconic Music Party on Thursday, November 30th, 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. at 6 West Lounge, 606 Broadway Street in Vancouver, Washington. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. About the current political regime? Want to do something about it? Something social justice related? But how do you find out about these things? Portland Resistance Calendar lets you know about a lot of these happening in the Portland area for the next week. It's a weekly podcast, it's a blog, it's a calendar, it's a floor cleaner. It's updated on Fridays. Learn more at KBOO.FM slash Resist.
2: Hi, you're tuned to KBOO Portland, I'm Stephanie Potter, And this is The Recovery Zone, a show focused on healing our world. If we're going to heal this world of ours, probably one of the most important things we can do is wean ourselves off uh, fossil fuels. And my guest today is Jesse Hunter, a solar energy specialist, and he'll be talking about how clean energy can actually help solve a lot more problems than even climate change. Um, They include climate change, the pollution, energy security, resource conflict, and more. But there's a lot of ins and outs to it, and he wants to talk about all of this. Uh, And you can call with your questions and comments at 503-231-8187. So, Jesse, are you there?
0: Hi, Stephanie. Can you hear me?
2: Yeah, great. You sound good. Okay, so um, I'd like to start out with kind of an overview or a framework. I I know that you're the father of a three-year-old, and so, on that level, for sure you have a vested interest in the human race surviving and thriving. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Of course, I have it regardless. I Right.
2: I Me too. <laughs> to <all people.
0: laughs> but, but yes, I definitely have uh, concern for my son, and I want him to come into a world that is... Um, I try to bring optimism in my own mind, so I think every parent wants to bring that to their child. And there's a lot to counter. We have a lot of problems. But we now have um, many solutions that I'm excited about.
2: Uh, and just to start, um, how does how does that world look to you? That you'd like him to grow up into? Um, just what kind of society in the world uh, would would work for you for him?
0: Uh, that's a great question. I, I think one where the actual foundation of livability is on the upswing as opposed to where we've been having a terrible accumulation of degradation uh, with existential threats. Of course, all of us have been born or many of us have been born uh, and certainly we all live under the uh, risks of mass extinction and that is a huge burden on our global civilization psychologically Um, but we have to live with that And uh, so we need to address that, make the movements to counter that. And it's not just from nuclear weapons, but it's also from environmental degradation. So that's one thing. How do we make a livable planet? How do we make a low-risk planet? And then also dealing with our history as a civilization. We have a lot of pain that we need to look at. I believe in truth and reconciliation we are a species that has had untold amount of war and conflict how do we look at that heal from that and move on and basically aim for more peace in the world and because that's what we teach our children on the playground and we need to live it as a civilization right
2: use your words not your fists that kind of thing And, and i guess for me also just to add into that um a kind of a world where we're really looking deep into the future, like seven generations out, like um, the Native Americans used to talk about, or um, and also where maybe we're not so into using our fellow creatures as resources. Um, how that's does that
0: right, work for yeah. you? That's right. So that's, I was listening to a documentary that was just talking about how Mother Nature is abundant, but you must follow the law, and the law of respecting regeneration and if you don't follow the law the law ultimately has no mercy it is if we do destroy our our biosphere we perish along with it there's just no question there so the imperative to make this move is uh, very serious but it's and sober but there are solutions so we just need to approach it with a uh, calm, cool, and collected mind and, and keep pressing ahead.
2: Yeah, like Mother Nature bites back or that kind of thing if we're not uh, really on top of it. But we well, are... Well, we
0: could, yeah, what's I, that? I, I, would, I wouldn't make it so much of a uh, anthropomorphization of it. You know, I, I don't look at it as revenge. I just look at it as, you know, this is our body. This is our world. We need to exercise and eat good food. And... Um, yeah, so not so much as revenge. I, I'm trying to take that element out of this. Uh-huh, good. Even good. Yeah, even those companies that have uh, that seem at the forefront of polluting the planet uh, for profit. I'm even now trying to apply, you know, NBC nonviolent communication or compassionate communication and thinking to to in a sense what we would normally call our enemies. Uh, we definitely need to fight them uh, with all of our strength, or or I should say use all of our energy to strive for a healthy situation, but take some of the, uh, the I guess, emotional angst out of it and just look at, okay, is there uh, a company, say, for example, DuPont or Monsanto or the chemical companies that we have uh, a huge amount of criticism towards? The people who are working there... Ultimately, they're just like us. All of us are trying to survive and thrive individually. We make compromises. It is part of the human predicament. And so even if I, I may want to press charges against a, uh, someone who is illegally polluting the planet, or even legally but immorally, um, we don't need to characterize them as inhuman. So that's uh, something I'd like to add into the environmental movement
2: great, I, I, yeah, it's like you don't want to be just creating more war, basically in, in a situation that's where right. that calls for peace. but um, I, we do have a lot of problems going on now, as everyone knows, um and for for you, what would you see as like some of the most critical
0: Well, so that's a long list, of course, yeah, um, I
1: maybe yeah, a few so of them.
0: At, so I look, at, I look at pollution and environmental degradation and, of course, climate change. And then also, so again, what I'm here to talk about largely is the solutions. Yeah. And what are those solutions for? Yeah,
2: we do and this briefly. The, <laughs> yeah,
0: and one of the key <laughs> sectors is the energy sector. So we have uh, the Solutions Project. I've talked about this in the past, and I'm glad to be on here to give the updates on this. But the Solutions Project is a is work from mark jacobson out of stanford university he's proposed a hundred percent renewable energy for all the world's purposes this would eliminate all fossil fuels coal oil nuclear and gas and i actually i count nuclear as a form of fossil fuel you literally have to dig it up uh... it isn't a carbon-based fuel but it still has many challenges and we can talk more about nuclear's role in in this but. That is one of the key elements for addressing both pollution and climate change, and also energy and economic stability. Because that, Without that, we're going to be striving on half measures. We have to have something that works economically.
2: And he's, he's actually saying it's completely feasible for our energy to be, um, uh, Mark Jacobson, for our energy to be 100% renewable. Um, that, and you agree with that then, right? Like 100% and without nukes or without even biomass, right? Um, 100% renewable?
0: He's done hun- well over 100 peer review articles over decades to show that here is the number of wind turbines, here is the number of solar panels, here's the amount of storage that's needed, and here are the very practical approaches to to supply grid-reliable energy at low cost and it reduces all of the incredible costs of the health impacts, which equate to about 3% of the global GDP. If you think about all of the cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, heart disease, asthma that is caused through air pollution, water pollution, and land pollution, those lost days of work, lost days of school, early mortality that it can be accounted for to equate to about 3% of the global GDP. This is trillions of dollars every single year. And, of course, we're talking over 100 million lives lost to the fossil fuel industry over the last 150 years or so.
2: so. So, yeah. Yeah. So I actually I'm thinking like just the, all the smoke we had last summer in Portland I've sort of had a chronic cough ever since you know and yeah I I definitely see that pollution is a huge factor in all this and so, I, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. but but he talks about that okay we can get renewables uh, and how soon could they actually be up and running?
0: Well, the we can build it as fast as we invest in it, and so physically. We could probably build it in 10 years if we, put, if we focused our budget. Right now, the world spends about $7 trillion every single year on energy. It would cost about $100 trillion to do the conversion completely. So by transitioning these dollars, or whatever the currency is, from fossil fuels and nuclear over to wind, water, and solar. If you transitioned all that money in, in a single year, you could do it in less than 15 years.
2: No, wait, course, wait what, what did you say yeah. it cost to, to transfer? It would cost how much?
0: I would say about $100 trillion. $100 yep. trillion,
2: and we're spending $7 trillion right now every year. year.
0: Yep, on energy.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And, and so uh, that is largely, if, uh, that's largely oil is the, bis- is the biggest expense there. There's a lot of subsidies to help people pay for this that does not include the health care costs which are another several trillion dollars a year right and this does not include the uh... mitigation and adaptation that will that we're going to have to pay for for the effects of climate change and of course the existential threat is beyond money so at a certain point you know uh, you know as al gore once said in his movie hey there's all this money and then there's life so you know. You can't really compare it.
2: Well, another, uh, a, another factor that um, I, I, I sort of just in talking to you that came up for me is you talk about how renewables could actually end resource conflicts. And uh, if we think about the military and how many trillions do we spend on the military every year, um, would it yeah. really help that die down, and how would that work?
0: Yeah. I mean, my personal belief about most war is that it's make work. I actually think pretty much all the wars we've ever fought, at its root, were largely fabricated and created for money. And Noam Chomsky, for example, said that World War II was largely a war of oil, for oil, and about oil, at its root. And you could say that also about World War I. Um, There was a conflict in Iraq. That's uh, That's why the European powers were essentially, once they saw, where's the energy? People need energy. And so rather than blaming people, again, for striving through war, even as evil as that is, what do they need? They need energy. And so out of desperation, they go into war. So with renewable energy, we have enough wind power on the planet to supply the world's current energy needs seven times over. This is accessible wind areas. With solar, we have more than 30 times the world's energy demand. So if every country which has wind, has solar, had its own independent systems of wind and solar, there would be no need to dominate the Middle East, dominate this sector, to control those resources either for our own consumption, essentially theft through force, or as a political chessboard, that we don't need to control, say, Iraq's oil, because they are trying to make a deal with another nation. And when every country has all the energy that it needs, then that really does reduce, in a sense, the fundamental causes of resource conflict. Uh, There may always be intent to dominate others. That, again, goes back to nonviolent communication. Some of the theories of that go back to the rise of agriculture, why we tend to dominate each other or try to dominate each other. But if there's an abundance of energy, it's, it's, too, it's pointless to try to dominate others. We have all the energy we need. Anybody else has all the energy they need. Now, of course, renew, uh, wind, water, and solar, as put out by Professor Jacobson, says that regional integration will reduce the cost of this plan. So cooperation actually does make sense. It will be encouraged. But each country can also do this Independently, That leads to energy sovereignty, which in my view then leads to political sovereignty and more political democracy.
2: That, it sounds great. <laughs> this sounds really good. Yeah. I want people to know uh, you're tuned to KBOO Portland. This is The Recovery Zone, a show focused on healing our world. And I'm on the phone with solar energy specialist and father of a three-year-old, Jesse Hunter who's sharing his thoughts on how clean energy can help solve the challenges of climate change, pollution, energy security, resource conflict, and all kinds of stuff. You can call in with your questions or comments. The number here at KBOO is 503-231-8187. And so so basically, um, back to maybe kind of a little more stressful, um, there are people saying that, we really have to turn this around and that that we actually have, I mean, in terms of especially climate change, we have kind of a window here, you know, and some people are even saying it's too late, but um, what, can you just give kind of uh, what you could describe as like, uh, do we have to have it done by, uh, like one thing I read, uh, we have to decrease it 5% each year until 2050. and instead, what we're doing is we're going up maybe 2%. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? And, and what, what, what's like sort of a best-case scenario, worst-case scenario there?
0: Okay, so just, just before I get into best and worst-case scenario and how much we need to reduce, you are correct that this year is expected to have a 2% increase of carbon dioxide emissions uh, after a three-year plateau. So we have been increasing for decades, of course. Uh, since the rise of the Industrial Revolution, which is typically uh, dated at around 1750, we've increased our uh, CO2 parts per million, which then increases the greenhouse effect, which, which then increases warming. And there are many feedback loops that then can lead to a rapid rise in temperature. And then we start to approach what some scientists fear as a mass extinction event Similar to what may be uh, uh, similar to the Permian mass extinction, which is uh, 250 million years ago, where because of volcanic um, uh, uh, volcanic seepage in Siberia, you had a massive amount of CO2 enter the atmosphere. Temperatures rose 20 degrees Fahrenheit. 90 percent, 95 percent of life died within over a long time, we are doing a similar increase in CO2 into the atmosphere, but at a much faster rate. We're essentially digging out and burning um, CO, uh, carbon sources in the ground. But it's mirroring the same similar levels of CO2 into the atmosphere. So worst case scenario, we can have a situation where this becomes runaway global warming. So for example, we're seeing the Arctic ice is declining rapidly. 2012 was the lowest in uh, human record. Uh, This year is the eighth lowest ice extent. The problem with ice extent is that it is a feedback loop. When you have less ice, you have less uh, albedo effect. The sun's energy hits the earth. Much of it is reflected back if it's ice. If it's not ice, instead it's dark land and dark water which absorbs, instead of Uh, absorbing only 10% of the sun's energy. Now it's absorbing 80% of the sun's energy. So this creates more warming, which then exacerbates the melting, and it becomes a feedback loop. Same thing can be said about forest fires. When forests dry out, they tend to burn more, releasing their stored carbon, which then creates more uh, greenhouse effect, and that creates even further warming. And there's many different feedback loops. If all these things continue, we reach a point perhaps of no return, where even if we were to cut all of industrial output with no emissions from power plants and agriculture, then we've already set the motion for natural processes to continue the output of CO2. There's also frozen methane on the bottom of the sea floors and what is con- uh, a concern of a called a methane pulse, where you have all this frozen methane that then is released very rapidly from hitting a tipping point of warming. And uh, that methane has far greater forcing of warming than even CO2. And then we get it to the point of not raising just 2 degrees Celsius, but 6 degrees Celsius, which then leads to 10 degrees Celsius. At that point, you have massive die offs of life, including crops and all, all sorts of species, with an industrial system with 400 nuclear power plants around the world. All of these things take years to cool down to make them non threatening of radioactive relief, and kablooey, they all okay. radioactive, and that's worst-case scenario.
2: That's okay, definitely so the worst-case. Uh, by the way, we do have a caller, uh, and after okay. the caller's done, I, we definitely have to get to best-case scenario, okay? But anyway, who's the yep. caller? Everett. Everett, what would you like to ask or say?
3: Hi. Um, well, I happen to be in a situation where um, I'm uh, uh, apparently going to be able to get a uh, financial assistance in the form of a loan from the Portland Housing Bureau. And I, uh, the contractor specialist that I'm working with uh, just um, pointed out to me that my chimney is in um, a very serious uh, apparently should be decommissioned. And the uh, gas, the oil furnace that I have, is something like forty or fifty years old, and so it's probably a good time to um, get rid of the oil furnace and replace it. So um, she is recommending that I switch to natural gas, and um, and I'm, you know, and the questions, numerous questions come up for me, including you know the use of fracking to get the natural gas and i'm wondering if maybe a heat pump would be better Um, i've looked into solar before you know when i bought the house and it looked like it was pretty expensive i wondered if uh, the guest has suggestion as to what i should do right now this month or next month or this winter um, for what i should do in my own home for for you know possibly yeah. making serious uh, you know serious long-term changes or you know for the next 10 20 years. Yeah, minutes.
2: we definitely want to get to what to do. So Jesse, just right now with Everett, what would you suggest? I think the heat
0: pump is an excellent idea. Now, heat pumps have a greater savings in areas where there is an extreme climate differential, so snow areas like in the north Midwest, but they also work in Portland. And solar energy has many incentives heat pumps should have some incentives let me give you a website that you can look at that will have a list of available incentives that you can then use to help make your calculations on how affordable this can be for you but again I just recommend even wood uh, at fireplaces at this point Uh, I've walked around the neighborhood at nighttime trying to get some exercise and then I'm uh, then I'm accosted by essentially toxic gases while I'm trying to exercise I think it's time for us to move away from burning things, move towards electricity. We have the technology, um, and we can go into some of the risks of using too much technology, but this is a great one. It's very easy, and there should be some affordable incentives. So the website is the Database for State Incentives on Renewable Energy or DESIRE without the first E, D-S-I-R-E. On that, it's a nonprofit website. It has the state incentives for all around the country, and it shows you the tax credits, other cash incentives. You can go there, see what's there, and then talk to a contractor. I always recommend getting at least two bids, three if you can, get the arguments for what makes sense. But we can, and long-term, we will be moving away from burning things. It just makes life in your home cleaner, Uh, which has economic benefits to you and, of course, quality of life benefits. So if you can get a heat pump, that's great. And insulation, windows, uh, yeah. Can you give me that website again? Absolutely. D as in Douglas, S as in Sam, I as in Igloo, R as in Roger, E as in Elephant.
3: Okay.
0: D-S-I-R-E or Desire without the first E. Okay. The database for state incentives on renewable energy, and then there's several filters. You click on the state of Oregon, and then uh, the filters will allow you. Is it for residential? What type of technology? Which sector? Uh, it's a very great program, and then from there you're going to be more educated. And that's what people need to do. They need to do a little bit of efficient self-education, and then they can make confident decisions on on uh, going in these directions. And these are the directions we need to go, but you need to know what you're doing.
2: Okay, right? and let's get back again. Um, we did a little runaway global warming there, which put shivers yeah. down my spine. Can you get to some a uh, best case scenario? And then, then I wanna move on to more of the technology here.
0: Well, well, and let me just do one final point of the worst case scenario. I actually, you know, I spoke with um, one proponent of what he calls near-term human extinction. So the the scenario that I laid out, he's saying is going to happen very soon, that we're already past the tipping point, no matter what we do, it's inevitable. And okay, that's fine, but I would say all of us are born mortal. We all live with the predicament of having to die, and yet we need to live before that point, and we strive to live a very good life before then. So he says live an an excellent life. Well, so do I, and that includes extending life. That's what we do as mortal beings, because by extending life, th- I and mean, this is worst-case scenario, even if we're doomed, by extending life, then you're getting more opportunity to live excellently, to do your spiritual practice or whatever it is, um, and rather than apathy through fear. Uh, so, I, so And best-case scenario is that those efforts actually not only extend the possibility of surviving as a species beyond the next uh, several decades, but maybe we can turn around and evolve as civilization. So just to fill out the philosophy of apathy uh, through its uh, futile, I, you know, I, first of all, don't believe that's scientifically true. Uh, We don't know. People can change on a dime policy-wise if they get, as you say, the shivers down your spine. If that happens as a society, we can change policy very rapidly if enough people make enough noise and get active.
2: well, when It has
0: happened in the past. Yes.
2: And little good news things like that are that um, apparently uh, uh, more Americans now do realize the, the majority that um, climate change is happening. Um, they're worried about it and Sarah Van Gelder actually wrote a nice thing that Uh, for Yes Magazine, how maybe we are ready to turn things around. You know, she says the era of empire, white supremacy, dirty energy, and global capitalism has shown itself to be terribly destructive, and the the number of people who benefit continues to shrink. So the legitimacy of the system is eroding, she thinks, as Americans become more stressed out and really start taking a look at what's going on here. So... I,
0: and right on. And I would like to you know, say it's supremacy, in my view, is uh, my preferred way of looking at it. Yes, white supremacy, no doubt. But ultimately, just the concept of domination is a societal feature that, again... Right, any to, sort of, of
2: domination. That's
0: right. right uh, of, and this goes back to nonviolent communication and Marshall Rosenberg's work, where he talks about the source of this being, as Hunter gathers... The what some say the original affluence of societies all around the world, whatever we looked like, we lived in a very connected situation because you knew the the quality of life of every member of of every person that you uh, lived with, and everybody was had interest in everybody else's well being, and also everybody was encouraged to achieve mastery. You had to learn how to live, and you wanted everybody to be able to do that. And so I think we lived at, in a much less violent uh, way, and the rock, the agriculture gave us the first surplus. And then all of a sudden you had haves and have-nots for the first time, which then created a system of the few having more than the many, and how do you control the many, but through domination force and domination thinking. And this has now infiltrated our our psyches, to a very large degree, in modern societies. Of course, the history, the details of it uh, of Europe uh, invading uh, the so-called New World, discovering "quote unquote" the New World, is a tragic event that there must be truth and reconciliation about. Um, I don't, reparations uh, comes into play here, but if we can do equality, then there's less. We need less talk about reparations, and we can just have. Abundance for all. That's that's what I think is going to be a an important way to approach this. And actually, if um, every
2: if everybody has a solar rooftop, you know, that's a that gets back to everybody has their own little power station. Uh, you know, more more like where there's less one person having the power and uh, everybody having their own power um, could be a good thing.
0: Uh, absolutely, and this applies to every nation and every individual. Right. Because. You know, a solar panel can work for a single home or, you know, a single hut.
2: This is the Recovery Zone on KBOO Portland. I'm Stephanie Potter. I'm speaking with solar energy specialist Jesse Hunter on how and why the shift to clean energy is a feasible alternative to uh, coal, oil, nuke, and gas, otherwise known as King Kong and how it could actually solve a host of problems. You can call in with your questions or comments. The phone here is 503-231-8187. And um, so anyway... Uh, yeah?
0: Yeah? And just to finish up on what you asked, you know, po- via political ideology, this is across the board. From conservative to moderate, everybody is the vast majority of this nation and the world wants to go renewable energy for all purposes uh, and regardless of education level regardless of age well and and you see that
2: 70%. I mean like in um, I guess what China Scotland France India they're all um, starting to mandate for just uh, no more gasoline powered cars um, China is really okay. doing it uh, it's apparently the world's biggest maker and seller of electric cars um, And I I just read where in India, the government wants to leapfrog our system. So by the end of the next decade, it wants most, if not all, vehicles in India to run on electricity. They want their cars to be shared, and they want their cities to be designed for humans, not cars. So um, electric cars really are or could be a big part of this. Do you see that as part of the technology fix here? Absolutely.
0: We just saw Tesla, an American car company, Red here, that uh, just announced the uh, Tesla semi-truck. So this will be able to, it performs better than the diesel truck. It doesn't have any local pollution. And they also unveiled their supercar, So both a toy for the those can afford it will help finance the mass-market vehicle, which is expected to wait a little bit right now, the Model 3. That Model 3 will be able to go 330 miles on a single charge, 0 to 60 miles an hour in five seconds, and many other performance features. They they have basically proven that electric vehicles outperform on every metric gasoline cars. Not only that, it is just a no-brainer for saving energy. Fossil fuel cars or internal combustion cars, ice cars, they lose eighty percent of the of the energy of the fuel's energy through smoke and heat. It literally goes up in smoke. With electric eighty percent, eighty percent. Wow! Because think about how hot an engine is. Yeah. All that heat is just going up in the air. You can't because you, you're creating a little a little mini explosion two hundred times a minute or whatever the RPM is, and that heat is you can contain some of it, the pressure of that explosion, but most of that is going up in smoke. Now, that doesn't even include the waste of the supply chain. What does it take to get oil pumped out of the ground, transported, refined, and, of course, the military system that has to guard that, control that, and so forth. It's an incredibly inefficient system. With electricity, well, first of all, you can have locally locally. Um, met controlled wind and solar to then make that electricity that then goes to a plug-to-wheel efficiency of around 90%. 90% efficiency.
2: Goes- so only yeah, 10% so talk- waste. Exactly. Wow.
0: So by electrifying transport, you have a reduction in the primary energy of nearly uh, 25%. Excuse me. Uh... uh it's even more than that. Thirty, thirty, about thirty percent, or twenty-five percent, is improved by moving just to electricity. Now you have to get that electricity from somewhere. There's arguments that if it comes from coal plants, then it's really dirty. That is, that's nonsense. Coal plants, uh, even the worst, dirtiest grid, is going to have less CO2 emissions per mile driven than an internal combustion car. Plus, internal combustion cars are not improving in their efficiency very much whereas the grid itself is rapidly cleaning up. Right. Uh, again, with with cars, now we have ride sharing and pretty soon the big one will be autonomous cars. This is coming on quick. We have pilot programs in uh, Phoenix and Detroit. There's a national bill that's pending to allow testing on the roads. England is putting out the bills. The technology is rapidly advancing. At some point, we're going to have autonomous cars. The advantage of that, and this is according to Tony Saba, uh, a, S-E-B-A, Tony Seba he's pointing out that when you buy a car, you use it only 5% of the time. It's parked 95% of the time. That is a disruption waiting to happen. So if instead of owning a car... Most people just need to get from point A to point B on a regular on a regular schedule. So if you use a robo taxi, an electric, autonomous, transportation as a service vehicle, then that vehicle after it drops you off, it can go and then pick up the next person. And so instead of parking and just sitting there all day, losing depreciation to actually utilizing its manufactured value. You manufacture this car let's put it to work. EVs also need far less maintenance. EV, electrical so,
2: vehicle, right?
0: Electrical vehicle, yeah. thank you. So, for example, the, te- uh, the Tesla Semi comes with a million-mile warranty. Oh,
2: uh, God. Also,
0: and with the, the Model S, that's the, that's the sedan that Tesla put out, they come with an unlimited mileage warranty. It's within eight years. So it's eight years, like most car warranties, unlimited mileage. So you have taxi services that go now from L.A. to Las Vegas that are putting on a quarter million miles a year. And they have no maintenance co- uh, costs except for tires.
2: Wow. Yeah, well, and even so, like we own a Prius, and uh, yeah. it's got a way cleaner engine. It's it's only a hybrid, but the way cleaner engine than the old um, gas car that we had before. It was just, you know, all sort of gunky and oily all the time, the engine, and this is really crystal clean most of the time. So: well,
0: the, yeah that, that's an improvement. Hybrids are an improvement, but they are definitely not. not the way to go
2: yet. We've got to move on from that. yeah. yeah.:
0: yeah, so electric vehicles, so we're talking now, if you have all electric autonomous cars, you can basically bring the global fleet of about a billion cars are on the road globally right now. you can replace that with a hundred million, about 10 percent, autonomous electric vehicles, and that means that we. We're going to reduce the traffic on the road, the parking on the road, all of that real estate. Los Angeles, for example, has parking equivalent to about three San Franciscos. Wow. So now you're going to uh, create bike lanes or business uh, extensions off the curb or public space. And then people, if they, wanted, if they need to get somewhere, they just go to a loading, uh, the loading area. They get in. They get taken to wherever they need to go. There's also going to be uh, well, there already is electric buses that are now um, being uh, ramping up. Yeah, and I uh, still Los love Andrew the bus the trains
2: right. in Europe. I mean, I, it seems like that would be another sort of great transportation um, solution. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But electric cars. Well, and
0: and uh, oh. another thing on the on the hundred on the billion cars. So we have hundred billion cars. I mean, excuse me, a hundred a uh, 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 billion cars. Those will have to be recycled all of that steel can then, instead of being mined, can be recycled and reused, which will then save about 5% of the total emissions goes into steel manufacturing each year.
2: One, one little niggly thing in all this, um, of course autonomous cars sort of are moving us into the realm of artificial intelligence and and then people worry about not having jobs and then perhaps there's this need for universal basic income. Could you just um, just a couple brief thoughts on this and then I want to move on to agriculture.
0: Sure, yeah, after talking all the benefits about autonomous cars, here's some of the risks that people need to be aware of, and one of them is privacy. So now you can get into the car, say you're with your best friend, you can talk about your life uh, in total privacy. With an autonomous car, essentially it should be viewed as public transportation. They have facial recognition, they have audio recognition. Essentially, everything that you have, is uh, everything that is being done by your person in that car is theoretically recorded and kept in as data. Uh, this is a potential problem, especially with the revelations from Snowden, where we see that uh, the United States very well may be spying on us uh, in ways that we would consider not only illegal, but uh, dangerous. Uh, from a personal liberty uh, perspective. So that is a concern. So somehow we need to have a lot of political movement towards making sure that this data is not being abused. Right. So not only that, if you think about an electric autonomous car, it has well over a dozen cameras all around it to make, to make it work. So now you're going to have electric vehicles going down your street, not just a Google car every once in a while, but... All the time, every minute, you're going to be having a vehicle that is essentially monitoring all the streets of all the cities of the world. Where is that data going? Is that secure? So that is a concern for me. And yet, I'm also a proponent of this technology. So, But we need to be uh, very crystallized about that. Now, in terms of jobs, we're looking at uh, potentially a unprecedented unprecedented disruption of labor from uh, not just cars, but all sorts of robots. This, uh, this is in agriculture, this is in uh, the legal system, medicine, so not just blue-collar jobs, but white-collar jobs. Now you have uh, the IBM computer Watson that can do a natural language query. So if, you, if you're a, a lawyer, instead of hiring a paralegal at $100 an hour, you can say to Watson, Okay, look up all the case law on this relative issue and then in a flash it can bring up all of the relevant case case law. And so this is, seems to be inevitable. Now, there's two ways to look at this. Okay, great. We have less work to do. Let's let the robots do this. This was kind of the utopian modernism of the 1930s, saying, okay, we can have a life of leisure. The problem is, is concentration of wealth. Because who owns these machines and then now you have unemployment. In Germany, for example, when there's low uh, employment, everybody just cuts their hours. So everybody tightens tightens their belt a little bit rather than laying people off and having some people with full-time work. At a certain point, you may need to have a UBI, Universal Basic Income. This was promoted by both President Richard Nixon and Martin Luther King, Jr. So... Uh, there's risks with that. Who is going to decide how much it should be? Is it going to be barely enough to survive? Uh, can it be cut off if you're a dissident uh, criticizing the government um, or for some other reason or will it be mandated as part of the Constitution? Everybody gets it regardless and then with that uh, there's the argument that we'll become lazy. A counter argument is that no people just leverage what they have to improve the quality of life. Maybe some people will be lazy. Who knows? And then there's a list of jobs that will be less likely be, um, to be disrupted, such as psych- uh, psychologists and teachers. We don't want robots teaching our 5-year-olds, for example, physical therapy, uh, jobs that will certainly be disrupted, driving. you know. So you can look at that list of risks. Apparently gone.
2: doctors and lawyers, I mean, a, a lot of sort of – you wouldn't expect it, but they're predicting like big crashes for them, too.
0: Yeah, 80% of medicine will likely be done by robots and artificial intelligence. So right. for diagnostic, now AI is already better at, say, looking at uh, someone's skin and determining if there's a, a problem there than a human doctor. Now, it'll be used in conjunction. It just means that ultimately we are utilizing, we're leveraging the power of our technology, which overall is a good thing. We're using less we have less human labor. I mean, people are so stressed out with work. Theoretically, if we do the math, there should be a way that we can live harmoniously, still work, still, you know, what I call right livelihood. Everybody needs to do something that is meaningful to life, to, uh, to strive and to provide for others or to add um, to the well-being of others. That isn't being removed. Uh, but there is the risk of this concentration of wealth, so that is the issue. And one way to do that is through pro- progressive tax. So back in the 50s, the upper portion of the uh, top earners, you know, after their first few million, it's the the tax rate starts to increase. So they had a top rate of 92%. People would balk at that. Of course, you have the tax rate uh, from. Uh, Uh, what's in Congress right now doesn't look so uh, good in that direction and of course we know that when you lower the tax rate you have less reinvestments because you get to deduct those investments when it's a high tax rate people tend to do that.
2: Right well anyway um, I want to let listeners know that you're tuned to the Recovery Zone on KBOO Portland. I'm Stephanie Potter. I'm speaking with solar energy specialist Jesse Hunter on how and why the shift to clean energy is possible. Um, and he wants us to all play a role in making this shift to renewables. You can call him with your questions or comments. The number here is 503-231-8187. There's, there's two other sort of topics around this that I really wanted to get to, and then I wanted to get to what we can do. Which, and we have like maybe 15 minutes left. So, um one of them is agriculture, one of them is geoengineering. And actually I'm thinking maybe we should do geoengineering just really briefly, but quickly, um, because theres uh, it's not just about, that's another huge technology that people are looking at that has a lot of risks and benefits. Um, but possibly the risks outweigh the benefits depending on what kind of geoengineering people are considering. Could you just uh, talk about what that actually is and why it's, it might be necessary?
0: This goes back to also the question we didn't fully address is the best case scenario. So right now, uh, Mark Jacobson's plan is we need to get to 100% renewable energy, and that's wind, water, and solar, not biofuels. Uh, they're not included in this for many reasons, basically because they uh, still have particulate matter, which is the main cause of uh, premature mortality, uh, but wind, water, and solar, mostly and that's basically 95% wind and solar, a little bit coming from hydro, tidal, and wave. So the um, the we need to get there by then. So we need to build that. And by, and by then is to,
2: like by 2050 at least? That's what I, some, a lot of the stuff I've read. Yeah, we need
0: to be 100% by 2050. He yeah. suggests 80% by 2030. That's a high ramp up. So geoengineering is perhaps one strategy to extend our timeline so that we avoid the loss of sea ice, which then creates a increase in the speed of warming
2: right so the uh, runaway Beckwith, warming
0: mm-hmm, Paul Beckwith out of the uh, University of Ottawa I believe uh, he has looked at the possibility of using sulfur dioxide, which is a leading cause of of the air air related air related pollution mortality um. To, to utilize a, basically 1% of what we're pumping out right now, putting in a micron size par- particulates into the stratosphere where it stays a long time as essentially it, over the Arctic as a way to reflect the sunlight, so um, solar radiation management. And uh, if we can be reducing emissions in the lower atmosphere from the ground, uh, more than 1%, there can be an argument as to why this may be a reasonable approach to extend our, our, pos- our time frame in how fast we need to do this to avoid the two degrees warming that is anticipated over the next couple of decades. We're already at one, 1.5 Celsius degrees warming over pre-industrial period, 1750. And so some are fearful that two degrees, is, two degrees warming is when you start to get these uh, accelerate feedbacks at a certain point when there's a point of no return. So if we're approaching a point of no return, then maybe these uh, measures can be implemented, maybe they should be, maybe they should not be. They would also be very complicated because you're talking about adding pollutants in an international, uh, in an international sphere. So you'd have to have treaties that would agree with this. Uh, What are the, um, the fair ways of mitigating this? But there's other ways of taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So you can have biochar, which you're essentially uh, burning, or you're making charcoal essentially out of um, uh, biomass, and then burying that. You can also have direct carbon capture, which is essentially a machine operated with energy that then captures carbon, turns it into bricks, turns it into gas, you can bury it underground, you can use it in industry for plastics or so, uh, although I think all plastics should be bioplastics eventually. Now. All of this is really a secondary measure. If we are not reducing our emissions, it's Pointless, because all it can do is extend our opportunity if we are desperately needing it.
2: Right. It's, it's uh, like getting on board with it. I guess another one, I, I saw another carbon capture. I guess some boats are running on some crazy machine that uh, takes carbon out of the atmosphere and then powers the boat. So things that capture it sound, you know, possibly good, but also you'd need billions of, or lots of them. And the other one, though, yeah. is, is using plants um, to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it deep in the soil. And that actually relates to agriculture. Um, I guess some scientists at Salk Institute were talking about harnessing plants, doing that kind of thing. And a lot of people are talking about how we could change agriculture, our practices, doing more more no-till to do that. Do you have a few comments about that? And then we'll get to what we can do more
0: so so, so one of the things I, I like from a technological point of view is vertical farming. Uh, it is basically, I, in my view, it looks very promising that we're about to crack the code on the economics of it. Vertical farming in its best form is where you're using indoor light. Now, of course, there's greenhouses. Um, uh, Holland or the Netherlands has the largest amount of indoor farming using greenhouses, but this is one story. Uh, in New Jersey, you have Aerofarm, that's A is an apple, E is an elephant, R is a Roger, O is an Oscar. Farms. they have made a technology where you have a tray about 8 inches deep that has recycled plastic uh, um, cloth over the top of it uh, that can be washed and reused. You put your seeds on top of that. Underneath the cloth, in the tray, you have a mister with the nutrients that are fully um, uh, managed. And there's no pesticides, no fungicides, no biocides, as Rachel Carson put it. No biocides. And then underneath, the roots are wet. They're just perfectly misted. And above, you have dry lettuce, or whatever the food is, uh, or whatever the vegetable is. And above that, you have LED lights. This can increase, for example, on one acre of a warehouse that has 30 of these racks stacked up, say, in in a 40-foot-tall warehouse floor you can have uh, well over 150 times the production of an acre of farmland. Wow, and that and would eliminate a lot of the
2: transportation of getting food to exactly. people. Exactly. You
0: can do this in the city. You can put this in where what we call food deserts. You can do it next to the school, next to the supermarket. It's grown right there. That way you're eating food that is minutes old. It was cut right then and there. And all that transportation is gone All the uh, petrochemicals that go into uh, the uh, pesticides and fungicides is eliminated. You're not having workers that are being polluted. It's literally organic. You're not eating those uh, residues. So I'm hopeful for that. It's still just the beginning technology, but AeroFarms has been expanding. They have a huge one in Japan, and that seems to be a a promising technology. And again, agriculture is is not a natural process. You know, we used to be hunter-gatherers for uh, hundreds of thousands of years, and then only in the last 10,000 years have we been agricultural.
2: Creating so deserts. Just, but but by yeah. the way, uh, Victoria, uh, you're on the phone.
1: Oh, good. We have um, a question. I hope nobody heard me swearing just now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: anyway, we want to get you on and ask your question.
1: Okay. Well, here's the deal. Um, right now, there is uh, geoengineering, being done under uh, the guise of them calling it experiment. And it's not sulfur they're spraying. They're spraying um, for solar, uh, what is it called, SRM? Radiation management. Radiation management. And um, I've been following the skies uh, because I look up at the stars and I love the beauty of the clouds, the former clouds, the natural clouds. It's been going on since before 1992 in my mind. Um, there's all kinds of information out there about weather force weather warfare uh, with the United States, as well as you know seeding um, clouds for weather management. there's even people advertising on the internet um, make sure your outdoor wedding has rain free and um, so they've been doing this for a really long time, and they're just, you know, the lines in the sky, and they're not talking about it because uh. it's an experiment, and they're allowed to do it on an experimental basis. Yet we're all breathing whatever it is they're spraying in the sky.
2: Okay, Jesse, do you have a comment because we're really running out of time?
0: Yeah, uh, I, I agree. If it is not transparent, if it is not un- if it is unhealthy, it shouldn't be allowed. Period, and that is—that's a policy that we can take. Whatever criminal activities governments do around the world, uh, we need to do our best to address that. And there's a lot of them, and some of them are not criminal, but they're—they're uh, they're criminal in actuality, just not legally. Such as burning of fossil fuels. So, fossil fuels themselves are the largest source of—we're taking it from the ground. And then pumping into the sky, that is causing four to seven million deaths per year, now many derivatives this was part of the work from Rachel Carson and she was bitterly battled by the chemical companies really and of course, on this today is the, <laughs> is, the uh, is the anniversary of jfk's assassination. He was a great supporter of Rachel Carson, and the polluting of our environment. her book Silent Spring became essentially the basis of the environmental movement. And or it, it, it made it very popular at that time. And so any kind of uh, polluting uh, that's coming in under the guise of a solution, yes, needs to be addressed.
2: One, what one, thing, yep. one thing i read is that actually one of the things we could do in the get-to-do section here, which is going to be maybe three minutes, is like just demand reparations. Cigarette companies had to give back $200 billion um, for the increased cost of health care. Apparently 90 companies are responsible for um, about 50% of the increase in our temperature and maybe 30% of sea level rise. They need to pay reparations. Uh, anyway... I, well,
0: yeah, I think that's fine. You know, uh, we can we can push for that. I think we do need to have our lawsuits. Uh, I I kind of again I'm trying to look at at a certain way rather than looking them at them as the other. And when I say them, that's kind of the other. But we we have to look at the situation of survival has been a mess. And and then you have uh, the Malthusianism, uh, the Malthusian trap, then leads us to uh, in a sense problematic. Uh, assumptions that human beings are inevitably self-destructive right. so I try to avoid that let's just find the solutions that work keep focusing on that look at, at stopping the pollution so the people are standing Rock, they're standing up to slow this while the solutions are gaining power as we reduce the uh, the political power of fossil fuels by undermining their profits Remember, seven trillion dollars a year uh, these these are the robber barons from 150 years ago. They're still in power, right? And so as we and and I when I say them, these systems ultimately because all of us burn gas, and so in a sense we're stuck being uh, part of the system. So we need to here let's add the solutions. We no no need to hate anybody. Truth and reconciliation is the way I look at it that. That and a few reparations. We can do reparations, but again, I like to look at it as. Uh, how do we how do we get to the end goal? That's the focus. Yeah. Reparations is a yeah. path there. That's great. Yeah.
2: And and but back to so actions like things that we can do. What do you what do you especially recommend?
0: Getting involved. Everybody should be doing something at your home. Make your home uh, more energy efficient. Uh, get an electric car. The incentives are there now. It is inevitable. Don't buy an ICE car. Don't buy an, a new internal combustion engine car. It's an electric car, uh, new, great. You have Oregon incentives, you have federal incentives. There's a $7,500 tax credit. There's a $1,700 uh, Oregon tax credit for of EV. Uh, if you want to be on the resistance side, you have groups like 350PDX.org, which yeah. is trying to stop the Vancouver uh, oil terminal that is uh, maybe on um, Governor Inslee's desk here shortly um uh so many yeah. different groups yeah to get involved make your house more energy efficient um tell your senators we want more wind and solar um and storage uh, systems we need to also make our grid all the transmission lines do need to be expanded so that we can have a geographically dispersed set of wind turbines and solar panels i also like offshore wind because you don't have the problem of NIMBYism not in my backyard it's far offshore. You lay the cables under sea. It actually can promote sea life with the floating uh, floating wind turbines, having them t- 10 to 30 miles offshore in deep waters where the winds are stronger and more consistent, and it's uh, not in anybody's view shed. It creates um, uh, basically places for plankton and other small animals to then uh, hang on to the, uh, the anchor cables and right. has, uh, Offshore wind is one of my uh, my favorite solutions.
2: A big one. And and then uh, finally, like, uh, but we got to go here, but I'm just going to say the words, uh, investing in renewables and divesting from fossil fuels. And that includes state yeah. pensions, universities. Reed College here in Portland, I think, is still um, invested in uh Uh, Something with the Cayman Islands fossil fuels, it's got to stop doing that.
0: Yeah, these are going to be stranded assets because, uh, you know, they are projecting, oh, renewables aren't going, you know, they're looking at it linearly. Like, we're going to be at barely 20% by 2050. That's not the case. We're going to be near 100% by 2050. Whoever is the last one to divest will be holding the bag of stranded assets. All of okay, were- we got to
2: go, Jesse. <laughs> but okay. anyway, good thoughts. Good thoughts, all of them. And uh, uh, just check out everything you can about doing this stuff you've been listening to energy specialist jesse hunter on why and must and why we must and how we can switch to renewable energy and why it's the only sane choice this is the recovery zone on kboo portland i'm your host stephanie potter and thanks to tammy for her fine engineering thank you for listening and supporting kboo portland up next jazz Lives.
1: KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Hats for the Homeless Donation Drive. From December 1st through the 15th, five Southeast locations will collect clean, new, or gently used hats, scarves, and gloves, and the folks at Zippity News will distribute them to local shelters. Dropbox locations and more information can be found at KABU.FM on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KABU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KABU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KABU Community Radio's open meetings policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast